0: First John chapter three. Lord, we thank you for friendship and fellowship in the house and we thank you for the blood of Jesus that washes us. Lord, as we come to your word, we ask that you'd stir us, shape us, mold us, Lord. We want to be better disciples of Jesus when we leave this place. May we be the hands and feet of our Messiah. It's in your precious name we pray. Somebody say amen. Amen. We're in 1 John 3. Today we're going to do verses 11 through 18. John, today as we we turn to 1 John 3, so much of the teaching, so much of the implication, the themes he's going to draw on, he's referring us back to what we have in Scripture in Genesis chapter 4, the first account of a worship service that ends in the first account of murder. And so um, he's going to continually return to the story of Cain and Abel and the way in which Cain fumes with frustration, spills over with hatred, and murders his younger brother. Cain, we're told, is uh, the firstborn of Adam and Eve. Eve thanks God. She says God helped her to have a child. It may be that Eve... For Saul, that Cain would be the fulfillment of the prophecy in Genesis chapter three, that she would, that the woman would have a seed that would crush the head of a serpent. It may be that Eve thought Cain would fulfill her, uh, her, her curse here. Uh, Cain is the, the center. He's the firstborn in the center of the narrative. It's really interesting. We're told that, uh, Cain's, what Cain's name means. We're told about Cain's emotions. We're told about Cain's, uh, kind of life and his heart. And we're told almost nothing about Abel. Abel is just kind of this quiet younger brother. Cain is a worker of the ground. He's, uh, works in agriculture. He's a farmer. That's an honorable job trade. He, Adam himself was told to tend the garden. We are told that Abel, on the other hand, was a shepherd and he primarily, um, dealt with flocks and also an honorable labor, labor job vocation. Genesis chapter four, verse three through five. This is the first account of a worship service in Scripture. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Now here, there begins to become a discussion about Why God has regard for Abel's offering and does not have regard for Cain's offering. Some suggest, and they may be right, some suggest that there is already a pattern for blood because when Adam and Eve sinned, the Lord obviously killed an animal to make clothes for them out of the, the animal's skin. And so some suggest that there already was a revelation that in according, uh, in order to enter into God's presence and have right relationship with God, there must be a shedding of blood. And so Abel sheds blood. He brings the firstborn of his flock and Abel brings the fat portions with it. And so he has this kind of revelation that there must be blood, that humanity is sinful and that there must be atonement. And the scripture says that Abel brought the first of his flock. And so the best and, and, and those would say that, that Cain's his offering is not received or honored from the Lord because it's not an offering of blood. That argument may be right. The scripture doesn't fully um unravel what's going on here. But it also may be true that even in Mosaic law, there were times where there were grain offerings. There were offerings of food, food offerings. And so others would argue that, no, like um John Calvin argued this, that Cain was a farmer and he brought fruit and In all of Mosaic law, there is such a thing as bringing grain offerings. And so it's not that Calvin would argue. It's not that Cain brought an offering in and of itself that was unacceptable. It's not the nature of the offering as either being bloody or fruit, Calvin argued. But it's the issue of Cain's heart. Now, from here, I think that there's actually some pretty solid logic here that flows from this argument. Cain brings an offering that the Lord does not look upon with favor and the scripture says that Cain the 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 Hebrew is actually really interesting says that his his face grew hot his and and that's the like kind of an idiom or the imagery of you know when you when you're really mad and all your blood rushes to your face and some of you get so mad that you cry right and you're like people are like why are you crying I'm not crying because I'm sad I'm crying because I'm going to choke you you know that um That's kind of what the, what the language is communicating, that, that Cain's entire face was filled with fury. He burned with anger. And the, the concept here is that if Cain and Abel both bring offerings and Abel's is looked upon, uh, and received and Cain's is looked upon and rejected, rather than like engaging with God, inquiring, repenting, uh, asking god how could i please you what did i do wrong cain's first response is fury and and calvin's going to argue and this is what i want you to keep in your mind because i think it's a really sound argument that that cain is the first hypocrite or the first pharisee in all of scripture because cain wanted to be received as a worshiper he wanted to be honored as someone who brought an offering he wanted to be seen as religious but when he's all is said and done and his heart is exposed he's he's not a worshiper he's a man filled with fury and self-exaltation and this is interesting and it becomes an entire type or a shadow for all of the scriptures that religious people people who want to be seen as righteous but refuse to do the heart work always end up with fury wrath anger bitterness that results in murder okay It's, it's a type in scripture Cain and Abel. We're told, for instance, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, that Abel brought his offering by faith—a better offering than Cain did. By faith, Abel was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offering. So in Hebrews, we're told that part of Abel, or part of uh, Abel's offering—the the reason it was received, the reason he was he was brought in as righteous—was the fact that he came in faith. There was something in his heart that trusted God, that needed God. Cain, on the other hand, is a hypocrite, pharisaical. He doesn't come in faith, but he comes expecting to be applauded. If all of your religious life is about being applauded, you know nothing of real worship. Genesis chapter 4, verse 6 through 7 The Lord says to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. You must rule over it. So in other words, the Lord says to Cain, what are you mad about, dude? Like do what's right and you'll be accepted. But sin crouches at your door. Again, we're given hardly any information about Abel. He just seems to be this kind of quiet, younger brother. But in this hour where God confronts Cain and says, dude, what are you mad about? Like, do what's right and you'll be accepted. Cain leaves his conversation with God, goes and finds Abel in the field, and brutally murders him. That's bizarre. Abel has literally nothing to do with what's happening here. He's just this kind of quiet younger brother who, who works as a shepherd out alone. He brings an offering, a bloody offering to the Lord, presents it. God receives it and Abel goes about his business. He's not judging, looking down his nose at Cain. He's out in the fields, like tending to his sheep. And why is it that a, that Cain in all this disappointment and frustration, rather than repenting, he murders the first worship service ends in the first murder. Genesis 4.10, and the Lord says to, to Cain, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. What have you done? Now, we read before, I don't know if you remember when we studied the book of Jude, that little epistle of Jude, we read um, a portion where it talks about uh following that these false teachers, that these heretics, that these evil people, he said, they follow in the way of Cain and they embrace Balaam's error. Do you remember we studied Balaam after that to look at what is Balaam's error? And here we acknowledge that first he said they follow in the way of Cain. So there is, scripturally speaking, a way of Cain. Say that with me, way of Cain. Cain's way, the type, becomes an entire category, a box that people exist in. It's a foreshadowing of false religious hypocrites who murder God's chosen. False religious hypocrites who crush those who live pure. So today as we return to John's epistle and this crisis in house churches, these house churches in Ephesus that are being infiltrated by false teachers who are promoting false doctrine. And in this fight that's happening within the church, Christians saying, no, we need to be faithful to the gospel, and others in the church saying, no, we need to follow this new revelation. We need to have this new experience. They're fighting, they're bickering, and now they're beginning to splinter. They're beginning to, to break off, and they're having a good old-fashioned church split. We call those church plants today, um, but that's a church split. And and in the church split, John rises up in chapter 3 today and says, Brothers, don't be like Cain. Let's read verse 11 through uh, 18. We'll read chapter 3, 11 through 18 today. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for The brothers. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Notice just right away how many times the phrase, the brothers, appears in the text. We love the brothers. We know that we pass from death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So he's appealing here to a kind of plurality or equal grounding in which all those in Christ exist in family. And largely what's happening in our text today is we're getting back to this idea of discerning or testing. Do you remember when Jesus says, you will know a tree by its... Fruits. In other words, if someone says they're a Christian, the words alone don't mean much, but taste of their life. So we're really stumbling into this idea. Now we're having a church split and people are having to discern who's right and who's wrong. And John is, is in very much bringing us back to the theme of good trees bear good fruit. And this is what the fruit should look like. Remember verse 10. So we started reading today in verse 11. We concluded last week in verse 10. Let me read you verse 10 one more time. I'm so, uh, yeah, verse 10. Um, he says, by this, it is evident who are the children of God. Everyone say evident. What does he mean by evident? He's saying test. This is the test. This is how you know who are the children of God. And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Okay, so we got a, we got a twin test. We have a two-fold examination. There are two, two, two ways by which we can taste of someone's life. One, we know that a tree is good if the person pursues righteousness, if they live holy, if they pursue purity. Two, we know that the person is of God if they love the brothers. So the twin test, the fruit that John says you should taste of is this. Do they pursue holiness and do they love the church? Love the brothers. This is, again, discernment, right? He's trying to teach us how to discern who are true believers, who are of the flock, who are sheep. And who are goats? We know sheep love holiness, pursue purity. And we know sheep love the brothers. Now, he's setting up in this logic, this concept of a false spirituality that wants to be seen as righteous, wants to be seen as, as religious, as, as spiritual and a true spirituality that has been Born again. Okay, remember we talked about that last week. So much of our passage last week was that Christians have been born again. And in that born again experience, they have attained or there are new fundamental aspects of their existence. And in being born again, the spirit abides in you. Your heart transforms from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. You're given new desires, new longings. So people that are born again and people... In John's language in in verse 10. And people who are of the devil or of the world. People that are born again love the brothers. Their fruit is they love the brothers. And people that are false, religious, hyper-spiritual wolves, they abide in death, is John's language. They abide in death. So we have two categories. We'll say one, Cainish. And one, pure, able-like, holy, good tree, bad tree, good tree. Cain, Abel, sons of Satan, sons of God. Those are, those are the, the types, the language that John uses. He says in verse 14, you guys with me so far? Are you paying attention? He says in ver- verse 14, we know again, when he says we know, what does he mean? It means we know, man. He's he's again referring to testing language. We, We know what kind of fruit this is in our hands. We know what kind of people we are. We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. That verse right there is a fruit test. We know that we don't belong to Cain. We don't belong to Satan. We don't belong to false religion because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love the brothers whoever lives over here and hates fellow christians they abide in death they are not christians so that logic creates a few little nuances that we want to tease out really quickly the idea that you can for an extended period of time love jesus and hate jesus's church is is wildly illogical um Because the scriptures teach that if you've been born again of Jesus, you will now possess a divine, supernatural love for God's people and God's church. Now, there is no one, I promise you this, there is no one as church hurt in America as the people standing in the pulpits, okay? Meaning me, okay? Pastors get spit on by the church more than anybody. I know church hurt is a real thing. And oftentimes when pastors are short and frustrated, and angsty, it's usually because they have open wounds gushing out of their souls, and you poked at it. Um, and so, pastors have to do good soul care, take care of their souls. And so, I, I understand that church hurt is a thing. I say all that to say. Like, I've been spit on by the church too. Um, but our confession, our conviction, is that we are a spiritual family born again in Christ, and my Love for you, my love for Jesus's people, my care and concern for the well-being of Jesus's people has to so supersede, wash over, outweigh the fact that some of you have said some things over the years that hurt my feelings. I have to I have to love God's people. So the negative command is given. He gives us a negative command. Do not be like Cain. Obey Christ. Love the brothers. Have a pure spirituality. Love God with your heart. Don't be like Cain who murdered his brother. Why? Because his own deeds were evil. Now that's the paradox again that is weird, confusing, but also everyone in the room I think can testify to true that religious people always want to compete, point, push down, and anyone who they view as competition, they feel the need to crush. So Cain, because his own deeds were evil, because he was rejected, he looked over at Abel, and Abel reminded him of everything he wasn't. And rather than dealing with the evil in his heart, he takes all of that red hot anger and he murders his younger brother christians do not compete with one another christians view christians as their greatest resource one of the greatest resources their greatest tools you're not my competition if i fail half of it's on you Like, you see what I'm saying? You're not my competition. You're my spiritual family, my accountability, my encouragers, the people that hold up my arms. When my marriage is struggling, you speak into it, and I speak into yours. When I'm struggling with sin, I can confess it to you, and you lead me, and you courage. Like, we're not competing with one another. We're in the fight together. But hyper-spiritual, religious people, they'll never confess sin. They'll refuse to acknowledge their own brokenness and frailty because they think you are their competition and not their help. The spiritually pure, those who are ableish, those who are born of God, the Christ-like ones, we, we confess our sins. I tell you when I'm struggling, I don't hide it because I need your help. That's why I say if I fail, I say it all the time, if I fail, it's on you, man. Like. <laughs> And obviously, I don't mean that fully, but there's a responsibility within the church to love and care for one another. So Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend, right? Brothers faithfully wound each other sometimes. What Cain should have done is gone to Abel and said, God didn't receive my offering. I'm, I'm angry. I'm struggling. I'm feeling frustrated. Abel, help me. What are you doing that I'm not doing? Help me understand. Hear my angst. Let me pour out my wrath for a moment and then help me clean up this mess. And brothers faithfully wound each other. When I come to Pastor Brad or I come to an elder and I confess, I'm feeling this. I acted out of anger here. There's a confession and then there's a faithful wounding, right? Uh, Caleb, this action was wrong. You need to repent of this. This is how we can handle that better next time. You, if you're a Christian, ought to cherish convicting preaching. Not hate it. Don't leave church going, oh, I feel condemned. They made me feel bad about myself. No one's trying to make you feel bad about yourself. We're trying to help you get out of the mud, man. I love a preacher that cuts me up. But to the hyper-religious, everything's about appearance. Everything's about attaining a status that's higher than everyone else's. That's one of the reasons if I could, I don't have a clock, so that means I can talk for as long as I want, okay? What time? Oh, shoot, I'm already going long. One of the reasons, I'm, I'm like not even close to these notes. Um, one of the reasons I really believe, and I, th- I can show you this biblically, that what the Bible teaches is that it should be a plurality of elders, okay? A plurality of elders lead the church not an individual super spiritual um, prophet or apostle. Or I believe that, that people can be apostolic. They plant churches. They have vision and structure. I believe that people can be prophetic, and I don't care if you call them prophets. I really don't. But the fact that someone is prophetic or apostolic and that they church plant churches doesn't mean that they get to supersede or rise above the plain teaching of Scripture, that there should be a plurality of elders that lead the church. And that plurality of elders, they're qualified to lead the church, not based on any spiritual gifting, but based on their character. Okay? And one of the reasons I am not a fan of what's happening in modern charismatic churches, I'm not a fan of the, the heavy emphasis on fivefold teaching. Um, I believe in the fivefold, I do. I don't believe the fivefold is superior to accountability and the plurality of eldership that brings structure and correction and love and care because when we allow someone to say I'm prophetically gifted, therefore I get to lead the church and make all the decisions. And I'm above what they're really saying is I'm so spiritual. I'm above accountability. I'm above needing the help of the brothers. And I think that teaching is going to destroy a lot of churches. And I want to warn you of it. You ought to be, this is just the nature of Hilton head Island. 64% of you are going to move away in a year and a half. Okay. Um, it's just the way it is. Don't laugh. You know it's true. When you move away, put yourself in a church with, with a plurality of elders that bring structure and leadership. Not one person who acts super spiritual and carries himself with a super nuanced hierarchy thing. I promise you, under that is false spirituality. Because when, when I'm the man, and I'm the guy, and I'm prophetic, and I dream dreams. When I'm the man and I'm the guy, I can never look at you in the face and say, my attitude with my wife today was bad. Because then you won't you won't worship me anymore. And if you ever see me act out against my wife, when I'm the guy. Everything short of murder to get you out of the get you out of the flock. Why do people get run out of churches by pastors who are red hot because someone saw their sin? The next piece of wisdom that we glean here is that he says we should not be surprised when we're hated. And here he's very much appealing to like the Sermon on the Mount stuff that um, Blessed are you when you're persecuted, reviled. People utter all kind of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. So they persecuted the prophets that were before you. That's the conclusion of the Beatitudes. So they persecuted the prophets that were before you. There's a lineage in which Abel is the, the head, in which pure people are hated, reviled, and murdered by the false, religious, stick my chest out people. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kind of evil against you falsely on my account. Why are, why are, why are the pure hated? Because purity is prophetic. Purity, by prophetic, I don't mean it pronounces prophecy, I mean, purity exposes, it brings conviction. Pure. When you stand in the presence of someone who lives wildly selfless, you know, you get in the car going, shoot. When I spend time with someone who really loves the word, like cherishes the word of God, loves it, can quote it and just enjoys it. And and I learn from them. I get in the car going, oh, delete Netflix. You know what I mean? Like there <laughs> there's this like, uh oh. Um, purity, conviction, zeal, passion, these things that raise the standard become a nagging nuisance to the people who want to be seen as religious, but don't want to deal with their heart. It's literally why Jesus goes to the cross to, to an extent that there are, there are Pharisees, religious leaders going, that dude is obnoxious. And why is he obnoxious? Because he cares for the poor. And he heals the sick. He's obnoxious because he keeps telling everybody how wicked we are. He keeps calling us whitewashed tombs. You know what that means? Somebody took a pressure washer to a grave site. And it looks nice and clean. But inside's rotten. That's what Jesus keeps calling the the Pharisees. His presence, the presence of Jesus, is so challenging that you will either Bow and say, oh, God, have mercy on me and lead me and stretch me and grow me. Or you will rise with frustration and hatred. And Jesus says, if you have hatred in your heart towards your brother, you, you already committed the act. The murder is already there. And John's expounding on that idea. If there's hatred in your heart towards people within the church, then you, you dwell in death. Dwell in death. John's saying, again, to this Ephesus church, right? House churches, they're having a a church plant, right? Which really means they hate each other. Um, They're they're splitting, they're fighting, they're nagging. And and John's beginning to say, the people that are spewing venom right now, telltale, man. Then he spins kind of a classic gospel observation. He says, We know what love is. We know what love is like because Jesus laid down his life for us. We know what is love. We know what it means to be born of the spirit because Jesus taught us agape love through his sacrifice, through his spilling of his blood, through going to the cross to serve us, even in our iniquity. We know what love is like. And John's implication is that ain't it. And so I guess what I'm warning you of today is that there's even a movement in our hour of hyper-spiritual people who wanna go on and on about their dreams and visions or wanna go on and on about their own strengths and giftings. It doesn't just exist in the charismatic world, it exists in other worlds too, where a man or woman tries to elevate themselves to such a status of never being wrong, of never struggling with sin, of being the ultimate authority, never to be challenged. And those people, I promise you, Lose with Cain. Find yourself in churches among people who love. Who confess sin. Who acknowledge their struggles. Right? Like we obviously again we believe in the gifts of spirit. I dream sometimes. I dream sometimes and I share my dreams. And sometimes they're prophetic. And sometimes they're really helpful. And sometimes I sin. And that's frustrated do you, know, do you see what i'm trying to say the gifts of the spirit flowing in my life are not are not an, an, an automatic stamp that says this man never sins the fact that i pray in tongues does not mean that i never get in little tips with my wife and and and, I, and these things coexist where i'm leaning into the spirit i'm growing i'm learning but just just because i express uh, any gift a teaching gift or just because i expect express a gift to serve or to administrate. Those things do not mean that my heart isn't struggling. And the true church will say, yeah, we believe in gifts. We believe in prophetic. What did you dream last night? Let's think about that. Let's discern. Was that from the Lord? And in the same conversation, you are allowed to say, and by the way, I want to choke my teenager. And I need help. I don't know. I just think maybe that's doing church there. And, and this is the hard delineation that John's drawing is like, man, the, the tree that bears good fruit will pursue holiness, right? So we talked about that. Pursuing holiness does not mean I am perfect today. It means I'm after Jesus's nature. So I confess sin. I read the scripture. I go to discipleship groups. I, I receive correction. I want holiness, so I'm open and vulnerable about where I am, and and I really don't care too much about your opinion about where I am <laughs> because I, I got enough of opinion about where I am, if that makes sense. I'm, I'm my own biggest critic, I promise you that. Um, but it's it's living in this place where I want holiness, so I'm confessing sin, I'm availing myself of every resource possible to grow in Christ-like nature, while I pursue the Spirit, and while I have a responsibility. Acknowledge my responsibility to spur you guys on too. So when Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? The gospel resounds with absolutely. You absolutely are your brother's keeper. You're absolutely responsible for the well-being of the church. Now, if you want to stand to your feet, Des, if you want to come for me, we'll get ready to wind down. Whoever turned the heater on, shame on you. Shame on you. So the twin test, the discerning test, the way way that we bite into the fruit and tell, the twin test is a pursuit of purity, of discipleship, growing in discipleship, and a real love for the church, a real love for the brothers and sisters and the family of God. We see that Cain looks religious, but on the inside, he's filled with murderous hatred And, and there's a sense in which we've all experienced that kind of hyper-religious posture, right? When, when, when God says to Cain, where is Abel? And Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? And God responds, the blood of your brother cries out against you. The blood of your brother cries out from the ground. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22 through 24 says, we come to Jesus, who's the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. In other words, the author of Hebrews is saying, Abel's blood cried out against Cain, cried out his condemnation, cried out his guilt. Abel's blood cried out, Cain is guilty. But the blood of Jesus spilled for us, speaks a better word, it cries out, He is innocent. She is innocent. It atones for, it washes, it cleanses. This morning, if you're here and you say, man, maybe I'm just religious. Maybe I've just lived in this kind of show up to church every now and then and dress right, but I don't know that my heart really wants purity. And I don't know that my heart, my life really breeds love for the brothers. I don't know that I'm really born in again into this family. The, The scriptural teaching is that there was a blood spilled to atone for your sins, and it calls out a better word. And if you would come to Jesus this morning, if you would come to the altar and give your life fully to him, open your hands and say, I belong to you, Jesus. The scriptural teaching is that the blood that ran red on Calvary would cry out your innocence, would declare to all the heavens that you belong to God, that you're forgiven.